1: Hello, fellow POTS patients and lovely people who care about POTS patients. I'm Jill Brook, and today I'm honored to speak with Dr. Carissa Arca, Mayo Clinic-trained autonomic and headache neurologist, now on the faculty and staff at the one and only Mayo Clinic Scottsdale, Arizona. She specializes in the intersection of dysautonomia and headache migraine, which I know is relevant for so many of you out there. I found Dr. Arca because some of you, dear listeners, kept telling me how amazing she was and how smart, kind, compassionate, and knowledgeable she was, how she thought outside the box, and is also a patient advocate. So I looked her up, reached out, and she was kind enough to join us today. Dr. Arca, thank you so much for being here on the POTScast.
2: Oh my gosh, that was probably the kindest and most thoughtful introduction I've ever had. So thank you so much. And thank you to my patients for putting my name out there. I love, love, love doing these types of things so that we can you know, reach to a, a greater audience and, and get people's questions answered. So thank you so much for having me.
1: We are so glad to have your brain power in this space. May we ask how you came to specialize in dysautonomia and headaches?
2: Yeah, yeah. Great question. And actually really exciting news. There's going to be a couple more people kind of coming into this field already. So there are, there are others. So just wait, but I'm kind of like that classic story of, you know, my, my vision for my career and everything just kind of changing as I went, you know, I had this, this perfect plan of of what I was going to do in the next five years, 10 years, and all that kind of continuously shifting and changing um it's kind of laughable the people that know me now that I was 100% sure that I was going to be a stroke neurologist like no doubt in my mind I was going to treat people with stroke and then as I got into my neurology training I I really fell in love with the outpatient side of neurology and and getting to know people in a clinic visit and really getting to follow them over time so that was kind of that first switch and then also, when I entered my training, I had no idea that I could even subspecialize in headache or subspecialize in autonomic disorders. So, those were completely new concepts to me, even getting into my residency training. And I first fell in love with, with headache and, and really just, you know, headache was what I wanted to, to read more about after a long day in clinic or a long day in the hospital. And I really, really enjoyed treating these patients and, and getting to see them get better. And the more and more headache patients I saw, the more and more I realized that they also had symptoms of autonomic dysfunction and how often that was getting overlooked. And it was really basically the, the inspiration of wanting to be a better headache doctor that got me into the field of, of autonomics. And I was really fortunate that I was able to do additional subspecialty training in in autonomics. And actually now my, my primary neurology practice is autonomic.
1: I was hoping to talk about the intersection of headache, migraine, and dysautonomia. But first, do you mind talking about the difference between headache and migraine?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think me and probably most headache specialists out there we kind of consider headache, any type of pain or discomfort kind of from the shoulders up. Now, does that necessarily capture everything? Probably not, there's some caveats to that, but that's kind of our general definition of of headache. And then when we're talking about migraine, migraine is a specific headache diagnosis. And migraine itself is something that we would call a primary headache disorder meaning that it's actually coming from dysfunctional cells in the brain. It's not something else that's causing the headache. It's not like a a brain tumor or or something like that. It's the actual neurons in the brain that are dysfunctional and are triggering the head pain. And migraine, it, it in itself is actually a genetic disease. There's not one specific gene that causes it, but it's a lot of different genes. And that's why you will tend to see migraine kind of run in families and then migraine in itself you know anyone that's ever had a migraine attack can can probably speak to this it is so much more than just a headache even as part of our diagnostic criteria to diagnose migraine it includes other symptoms besides headache that includes things like light sensitivity sound sensitivity nausea vomiting sometimes the, the conglomeration of all of those symptoms can just make any type of activity, physical or mental, difficult. And so oftentimes people will be in bed and resting. So, so that's, the, that's the main difference there is, is headache is a very general term, and then migraine is a very specific diagnosis.
1: Great. So how does a neurologist think about headaches and migraine? What are the important aspects of them?
2: for me everything everything about it and so that's why anytime even if one of my patients kind of casually you know just on the side mentions headache I kind of have to say hold on a second i'm i'm about to ask you a lot more questions about this so that i can better understand um, what's going on and and so absolutely you're right the intensity the the frequency severity all those things we want to know about but one of the anytime that i'm thinking about any type of headache, the, the things that are in the back of my mind are figuring out, is this a primary headache disorder or a secondary headache disorder? And and again, primary headache disorder being something that's coming from the, the neurons in the brain, the cells in the brain itself, usually they're kind of this, this hyper excitable cells that, that trigger a headache. Or is it a secondary headache disorder, meaning that something else is causing that? That could still be something in the brain, like a brain tumor, like blood in the brain. It could be blood outside of the brain. It could be arthritis from the neck. It could be a spinal fluid leak. So many, so many different causes of secondary headache disorders. And, and with the reason why I said, you know, I want to know everything. I want to know all the details is because as neurologists and, and headache specialists, we do a really thorough history asking you so many questions that, that oftentimes, you know, patients don't know all the answers to when we're asking them for the first time. Cause you know, they're like, well, I never thought of that, but we take a super detailed history, do a detailed neurologic exam to help narrow down that differential to say, you know, this seems like very classic migraine, or, you know, actually there's a couple of things you mentioned that that raise my level of concern. You know, maybe I want to get some further diagnostics that might be a brain MRI, spinal MRIs, maybe an autonomic reflex screen to see if maybe there's an underlying autonomic disorder that might be contributing to the headache. So so that's really any time that I'm discussing headache with a patient, I'm trying to classify in my mind, does this sound more like a primary headache disorder or does it sound more like a secondary headache disorder? And what else do I need to do to better understand these
1: symptoms? Do we know what causes headaches or migraine? Like, do we know what's actually going on in the brain during migraine attacks, for example?
2: Well... It depends on what we ultimately end up as, as the diagnosis. So, so we do know what, what causes migraine there, there is still even more that we want to know about it, but, but we think that migraine actually really kind of starts in the part of the brain called the hypothalamus. And basically when that hypothalamus kind of gets triggered or activated to start sending these extra signals. It basically sends a cascade of of activation of different parts of the brain. And some of those different parts of the brain actually include autonomic centers in the brainstem, as well as tons of other parts in the brain. And that's why migraine in itself is so much more than just a headache because so many other parts of the, the brain are getting activated that can lead to more of the nausea, more of the light sensitivity, appetite changes, changes in the gut, which I, I think we're going to talk a little bit about later too. But, but we, we actually do have a really good idea of what's going on in the brain during migraine, but we're still always learning a lot more.
1: Oh, wow, that's fascinating. And so, and so, I mean, I guess it just sounds like maybe one reason people have so many issues up there is just that there's so many important parts up there. And as soon as one thing gets going wrong, and it drags everything else into it, it's just it sounds like a big mess.
2: I I think that that's a really good way of describing a (laughs) migraine attack. It can absolutely feel like a big mess and like your body is just not doing what it's supposed to be doing. I mean, sometimes I think it's really important to highlight that the head pain might not even be the most bothersome symptom. It might be the nausea or the fatigue or the brain fog. I mean, similar, just like when we're talking about autonomic disorders like POTS. It might not be the high heart rate that that's that's that bothersome. It might be all of these other things. And again, that's just because it's so complex.
1: So how common are headaches and migraine in the general population versus in dysautonomia? Do we know why they're so much more common in dysautonomia?
2: Yeah. So in the general population, migraine itself affects about one in five women, about one in 10 or 11 children, and one in 15 or 16 men. And so so it is actually quite common. And just like some of our autonomic disorders, like POTS tends to affect women more than men. And As far as the the frequency or, or prevalence of migraine and other headache disorders in patients with dysautonomia, The the epidemiologic data is not great at this point. We don't have the best sense of how common a lot of these specific headache disorders are. We do know that headache is incredibly prevalent in autonomic disorders, POTS in particular. And there was a recent attempt at a a systematic review to really look at all of the studies that had reported the frequency of, of headaches and to see if we could specifically pinpoint, well, how frequent is migraine? How frequent is a spinal fluid leak? These types of things. And unfortunately, because of just the the differences in all these studies across the board, it was kind of comparing apples to oranges a lot of the time. So that's, again, what I'm saying, we don't have great data. But what I will tell you, even what's reported in the literature and what I see in my clinical practice is I think that the frequency of headache and even migraine in particular is much higher in those with autonomic disorders, particularly POTS. That's that's really what I'm seeing in my practice all the time. And kind of looping back to what we were talking about earlier, I mean, Migraine in itself involves some of these central autonomic networks in the brain, so it's really not all of that surprising to me that that we see this overlap. But definitely, what I would like to see happen in the next ten years, hopefully even sooner, is better understanding of this specific connection between the two.
1: Do the headaches in your dysautonomia population look very different from the headaches you see in the general population?
2: I'd say that when when it comes down to the the ultimate diagnosis of whatever headache disorder someone with dysautonomia has like if they if they meet criteria for migraine overall the migraine disease looks relatively similar to someone without dysautonomia mostly because you know there's certain boxes that need to be checked to make that diagnosis in the first place but I mean even if we're, we're looking at migraine as, as a disease in general, one person's migraine journey is going to look completely different from from the next. And, and same with you know one's pots journey compared to someone else's, you know, you know they're going to look completely different. What I would say though is if I'm specifically kind of thinking about my my patients with pots that also have migraine, I would say that a lot of the time, the migraine component might be more refractory to treatment, a little bit more difficult to treat than potentially someone without an autonomic disorder. This is this is not to say that that's a blanket statement for, for you know, everyone with, with POTS and migraine, but just something that I kind of tend to observe. And the other thing that I see pretty frequently in my, my POTS population that also has uh, migraine is I do see a lot of what's called postural headache. And so when I describe a postural headache, I'm usually referring to a headache that is either brought on by change in position from flat to upright or significantly worsened in that change in position and then better with flat or resolved when flat. And that can also go the opposite way when we're referring to orthostatic headaches. It could be worse in the flat position. Oh, that's Um, interesting.
1: That can go either way.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and so I always like to specify I'm, that I'm talking about orthostatic worse in the upright position, and and then that that leads me to a lot more diagnostic testing in these this patient population to make sure that I'm not also missing something like a spinal fluid leak or or these other causes of orthostatic headache. And so so this is a a big area of interest for me is better understanding orthostatic headache in general, because we, we have this entire handbook or manual of all the diagnostic criteria for all the headache disorders, but we still don't have a specific headache disorder that's associated with POTS and will there be one i don't know you know i we just need to to better characterize the headaches in our patients with pots as well as other autonomic disorders to see if there are certain characteristics that are you know definitively seen in this patient population so that's that's a big interest of mine to to better understand in these patients
1: so i'm getting the idea that the world of headache is just as complex as the world of dysautonomia where all the patients are different and nothing's simple and it's not like, oh, you can just treat it or that, it, like, do, you even, do we even have any clue? Like, does it seem like they just co-occur headache and dysautonomia or does it seem like one causes the other or vice versa or could it go either way or just completely unrelated? Do we know any of these things? Right. I mean, you're very
2: right in that that the world of headache is is very complex, just like that of autonomic disorders. I I think that maybe we're we're a little bit more ahead in some of our our headache-driven research and things to be able to have more specific treatments for our patients with headache and more FDA-approved treatments. You know, where we're still trying to move the needle for that with with pots and other autonomic disorders. But I would say, I mean, I definitely think that these things are are interrelated. I I, it's very hard for me to to separate them. Now, do I want to separate them in my patients to just, you know, let's try this specifically for headache, see if it works for headache. Yeah, we do need to make that separation when we're when we're talking about treatment plans and, and things like that. But I do think that these things are are so interrelated. And sometimes as we use a medication, four POTS or one of its its associated comorbidities, maybe that's mast cell or these other types of things, I have seen the headache part get better too. Sometimes uh-huh. we just, you know, we just don't know. And so again, that's why we just need to better
1: understand all of these things together. Oh, that's fascinating. Can you talk more about treatments and especially like what patients can expect from the process of trying to treat it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So There is actually some overlap in treatments for for migraine and POTS specifically, and and I'll talk about that in a second. The the two ways that you'll hear us talk about treatment of of migraine is we'll separate things into what are called abortive treatments. So those are really the as-needed treatments for when someone is having an acute migraine attack. And in the ideal situation, someone takes their acute or rescue medication, and within a couple of hours, hopefully they feel significantly better, or maybe even the migraine attack is resolved. That's the goal with any acute or abortive treatment. And then you'll hear us talk about treatments that are preventive in nature, and this is to reduce the frequency and severity of migraine attacks over time. And so the overlap between migraine treatments and POTS is really seen more in this preventive aspect of things. Interestingly, there are several beta blockers that are FDA approved for prevention of migraine, which is interesting considering that we don't have that for POTS. And that's, you know, one of our main medication classes that we use all the time for POTS. Now, the doses that were studied for the prevention of of migraine are much higher than we typically use for, for POTS. So there is that caveat, but what I can say just from personal experience is a lot of times, even at the lower doses of beta blockers that we'll use for, for treatment of POTS, I have seen improvement in migraine. Is that the case for everybody? No, of course not. But I wouldn't rule it out as a possibility that even these low doses um, can help from a migraine prevention standpoint. And then some for me in my clinical practice, Some of the other overlap between migraine treatments um, and POTS that that I personally use is some of these other medications that were originally developed to treat seizures, so our anticonvulsant or or anti-seizure medications that are very commonly used for migraine prevention But I actually find that some of these medications can even kind of have a a calming effect for this this overactive nervous system that we oftentimes see in our patients with autonomic disorders. And so sometimes I'll borrow those medications as well and and see if they can help from both a headache standpoint, as well as just that kind of overactive, you know, fight or flight uh, nervous system responses that that we see in, in autonomic dysfunction. So So that's kind of some of the overlap that we see in in medications that we might want to choose for treatment of both conditions, something like POTS and migraine. But then it's also really important for me as as a specialist in both headache and autonomic dysfunction to think of which medications that I might want to use for migraine that could worsen the underlying autonomic dysfunction and and again this is one of those situations that we never quite know someone might tolerate these these things just perfectly fine but it's definitely something i keep in mind especially with some of our newer medications like the CGRP monoclonal antibodies that are migraine specific preventive treatments we know that some of them can slow down the gut a little so if someone already has an underlying GI motility disorder I may not feel super strongly about using those medications right off the bat. We, you know, with a, a shared uh, decision-making and, and discussion with the patient, we might elect to go ahead and use it and, and give it a try, but it might not be my kind of initial inclination or or go-to. Similarly, focusing on the gut a little bit more, if someone does have gastroparesis or again, uh, some of these other motility disorders they may not absorb the oral medications that well, so I might be leaning towards um, more non-oral medication options. So these are all the things that I'm, I'm keeping in the back of my mind when I'm treating patients with both autonomic dysfunction and migraine.
1: Have you seen good results with vagus nerve stimulation for headache or migraine, or have you seen any scary side effects associated with it?
2: Yeah, So we have one FDA-cleared device for use in migraine, and it's called the GammaCore device, which is a non-invasive vagus nerve stimulator. It's approved for several other headache disorders as well, including cluster headache, and more recently, potentially for use in, in hemicrania continua. And the, what I like about the non-invasive vagus nerve stimulation, and as well as a lot of our other neuromodulation devices is that it can be used both preventively for migraine as well as for abortive treatment. So it offers both of those options. And wanna, what I would say is, has been the biggest limiting factor for me using not only the GammaCore device, but also really any other neuromodulation devices in my practice is the fact that they're not covered by insurance. And so this has significantly limited the, the use of these devices in my personal practice. I I like to, to discuss them with a lot of my patients, but ultimately the oftentimes the decision is to not try it because of the out-of-pocket expenses. Um, so that being said, and in, in my own clinical practice, I don't have a whole lot of patients using non-invasive vagus nerve stimulation for treatment of, of migraine. I'd say of the patients that I do have using the device, most of them have cluster headache. Um, and that's because we have even less treatments available for cluster headache. So I think a little bit more patients are willing to, to give it a try. I also did a very small study. I I believe it only included three patients. It was a case series looking at the use of non-invasive vagus nerve stimulation for something called visual snow, which is something that we frequently see in people with migraine, although visual snow in itself is much more rare. And I did actually follow these patients, I think over about 10 weeks. And, And so I was able to follow this very small cohort of patients pretty closely and really didn't see any, you know, big, bad, or scary types of side effects that we were able to attribute to the device. So I really haven't seen a whole lot negatively from from the use of this device. What I will say is that we really just don't know how patients will do if they have significant heart rate or blood pressure lability. And and that's even listed on the the GammaCore website itself is that, you know, it just really hasn't been studied in, in that type of patient population But you're right, there is tons of talk about vagus nerve stimulation for use in people with autonomic disorders. It was a big topic at the last American Autonomic Society meeting and it got me really excited. And there's a lot of talk about use of other types of devices, things that are going to go in the ear and stimulate branches of the vagus nerve in the ear. So I'm really excited to see what these, there are several studies that are looking at it specifically for patients with autonomic disorders. So I'm really excited to see uh, what these studies are going to show.
1: So you have written some fascinating articles about potential links between headaches and the gut. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, most recently I wrote uh, a review paper with some of my colleagues uh, in the GI department here at Mayo so I'm very thankful for for their expertise and an ability to to weigh in on some of this topic as well but I would say one of the the biggest things to to know about the connection between migraine and the gut is that There have been studies that actually show that there is slowing of the gut, specifically of the stomach, so gastroparesis, during acute migraine attacks, as well as even in people with migraine outside of an acute attack, that there might be more just persistent slowing of the gut. And again, not super surprising given everything that we know about all these different connections with the autonomic centers in the brain. You know, we were just talking about vagus nerve stimulation. So we know that the vagus nerve, which is a huge pathway to the gut, is very involved in migraine. And this kind of loops back to what I was saying earlier about treatment options is kind of knowing and understanding that that gut dysmotility may be a component of migraine, we need to keep that in mind when we're choosing what treatment options we want to use for our patients. So in someone that we do know has gastroparesis or maybe has very significant GI symptoms with their migraine attacks, potentially avoiding the oral medications and maybe doing something like a nasal spray or an injection or maybe a neuromodulation device may be preferable so that that medication can actually get absorbed in their system and actually has a chance to work. And then that actually brings me back to our, our just recent discussion about the core device is there are several small studies that have shown that that specific core device for non-invasive vagus nerve stimulation um, has actually improved some symptoms of gastroparesis. So that's just a very exciting connection. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to, again, seeing the results of some of these upcoming studies that are looking at uh, vagus nerve stimulation for autonomic
1: disorders. When should someone seek medical advice for their headaches?
2: So I would say that anyone who has headache that is disruptive to their day-to-day functioning should seek medical uh, advice and, and potential treatment for their headache disorder. Um, and sometimes a diagnosis and treatment plan can be made with a PCP. Um, that, that particularly includes things like tension type headache and, and migraine and, and these types of things. And unfortunately, what I would say is that just like autonomic disorders, migraine and and a lot of these headache disorders can also be highly stigmatized. And so that can make getting an accurate diagnosis and treatment even more difficult. And, and as you mentioned, kind of in my intro, I'm very passionate about advocacy. And so this is very much something that I am actively trying to, to reduce in, in both the headache community and the, the autonomic community. And I think one of the big ways is through education, but, but just because you might have had a, a negative experience trying to get treatment or, or help for your headache or autonomic disorder does not mean that you should give up. There, there are plenty of us out there that want to listen to you and, and help you. I know we're few and far between, but please don't let that discourage you from, from seeking another opinion.
1: Is there anything that your patients can do to make it easier for you to help them?
2: Yeah. So anytime I'm meeting a new patient, I really like to understand the timeline of their symptoms and understanding that for some patients, this, whatever their symptoms are, whether it's headache or or autonomic related symptoms, this might be lifelong. Um, Others remember a specific day where their life just kind of got turned upside down. Um, But kind of having this general framework of what symptoms started when is just really helpful for me to get the, the overarching uh, picture and can really help me kind of hone in on, on what I think might be going on. And Also having a list of any medications that have been tried for for any of the symptoms, again, whether it's headache or autonomic-related symptoms, what doses you got to, why that treatment was discontinued, maybe it was due to side effects, maybe it was because that medication was ineffective. Having that information up front is also really helpful because then I, I know what you've tried and we don't have to, you know, kind of revisit the drawing board with that And then the last thing I would say is, especially kind of from an autonomic um, standpoint, we of course know that the autonomic nervous system controls basically everything um, in our body. And because of that, symptoms can be so widespread, but really kind of if you're able to identify your maybe one to two most bothersome symptoms, what gets in the way of your functioning the most on a day-to-day basis, I think that that can also be helpful for me to try to create a a better treatment plan for you by addressing some of those top concerns first, and then we'll see how things go and kind of whittle away at things as we go, understanding that this is going to be a long-term relationship and we'll, we'll have to kind of keep addressing symptoms as we go.
1: Is there anything else you'd like patients to know about headaches, migraine, or dysautonomia?
2: I would say number one, kind of like I already mentioned before, is is you don't need to suffer alone. You know, there are headache uh, and autonomic specialists out there. We want to listen to you. We want to help you. I know we're few and far between, but don't give up. And then the the other thing I would say is probably a lot of people that listen to this podcast are familiar with things like Dysautonomia International, which is a fantastic advocacy group for, for education, support groups, all of these types of things. But these groups exist in the headache and the migraine world as well. I would specifically recommend Miles for Migraine, but then there's other advocacy organizations, things like Cluster Busters and CHAMP as well. So I would definitely take a look at these organizations that also have great educational materials and can even help you prepare for your visits with with a headache specialist with some of the tips I mentioned previously.
1: Dr. Arca, thank you so much for sharing all this great information with us today. We are so thrilled to have your brain power and research and compassion on board to help this community. Much gratitude from all of us here at the podcast. Okay, listeners, that's all for now. We'll catch you again next week, but in the meantime, thank you for listening. Remember, you're not alone, and please join us again soon.
0: As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Consult your healthcare team about what's right for you. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can send us feedback or make a tax deductible donation at www.standinguptopots.org. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing to our podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.